Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Martin Rev. As one half of the band's suicide, Rev combined minimalism, rock and roll and noise into a sound that changed both electronic and punk music and continues to influence artists in the present day. Rev was born in the Bronx and grew up on a musical diet of classic rock and roll and free-thinking jazz, which provided an unlikely grounding for a style that would influence avant-garde and DIY culture. He's just released his ninth solo album, so we had Matt McDermott meet up with Rev in his native New York for a career-spanning look at his life in music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Martin Rev is up next. You keep that flame burning, baby Mm -hmm. You gotta keep that flame burning forever, baby Mm -hmm. Dream, baby, dream Yeah, come on, baby, keep that dream burning Yeah Forever And ever Okay, we're here with Martin Rev, uh, New York City legend. Martin is preparing for the release of his ninth solo album, uh, his first new material since 2009. This one is called Demolition 9, and it's being put out on Craig Leon's label. He's sort of come to notoriety or re-entered this sort of underground music world in recent years uh, thanks to the release of re-release of his record Nomos, uh, this really bizarre and beautiful record. Uh, but obviously, like Marty Thau brought in Craig Leon for to engineer the, uh, the session for the legendary uh, self-titled Suicide debut. Can you, can you tell me how you met Craig? 
Well, that's how I met Craig when uh, Marty brought him to the studio. Well, uh, we knew on Marty's recommendation, Marty's choice of producer was going to be Craig Leon, but I, I hadn't known Craig Leon before that. Neither of us did, Alan or I. So we all met together in the studio for the first day of uh, sessions, which actually is where we basically recorded the whole album, because it was a live album, so it was done like in 40 minutes or something. Craig and I ran into each other accidentally in New York, maybe once or twice at the most, uh, maybe once in the 80s or 90s. Since that time, we're talking about since 77. So uh, we spoke briefly just a year or two ago concerning uh, the Barbican show, the Suicide's last show. Otherwise, uh, an occasional email on a, on a tentative project, uh, but we never worked together or saw each other otherwise since all those years. And, and it seems like with Demolition 9, one of the most interesting things about your solo catalog, uh, you know, with the self-titled record from 1980, that was, that was sort of an obvious step from suicide. But uh, since then, you know, it's really been all over the place. Like uh, Les Nymphs is, is, a really sort of interesting record that gets into everything from kind of exotica to house music to industrial and uh, Stigmata is, you know, a more orchestral record from what I understand, uh, dedicated to your late wife. But on this new one, it, it, it's maybe your toughest album since the suicide days. Like it seems like you're, you're trying to remind everybody that uh, you can still get pretty gnarly. Well, uh, not consciously, but it's uh, maybe more affected by live shows, which I've been doing many of in the last quite a few years. Um, and a lot of that sound uh, definitely seeped in. And some of that was conscious. I wanted to see how much of that live sound I could replicate in a pure audio setup. But not obviously not in every track. But it must be just... Uh, the way I'm responding now to the decisions that the music demands from my ear. The other albums were based on those aspirations or decisions at that time, because you change as you live and you listen and you, you know, to more and more or, or experience more and more in general and especially in music, you tend to uh, go for the next step, whatever that is for you. And you don't always necessarily reach it. You try to go as far as you can to reach whatever your original expectation is. But of course, that changes as soon as you start because you realize you're, not, you're in a, a total uh, no man's land, you might say. <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you mention live shows because one of the things that we cover a lot of on our site is DJs. And DJs are supposed to react to the club and to the audience. And I know that's something that you think about a lot as well. Like, oh, this is this is how I would play a club show. You know, I, I, I play beats when I'm in the club. Like, how is your reaction or, you know, general affect with the audience changed over the years? Because at, at the beginning, it was extremely confrontational. And, and at this point, it's like, okay, you know, I'm in a dark nightclub, I'm gonna play play beats well i do i do dig when i'm playing live to play live you know i mean especially in a club setting 
Because that's where I, I guess that's what I would want to hear in a club, maybe, you know, and that's what I want to feel in a club. So I'm really entertaining myself first. It's great when an audience digs it too, and you start to see, maybe you're starting to move like now, you know, you see a lot of that. Because the beats, and not just the beats, but uh, maybe the way I'm handling them is very infectious. But of course, what I'm playing around them or with them or what I'm doing with them is not necessarily. Uh, something they would have expected or is that easy to digest. Knowing me a little better than, say, when we first came out as suicide, it's not, I'm not a total unexpected entity. A club reference like dance music, basically, you know, as much as beats are just a dance orientation. Now I'm doing, uh, in every show just about, I'm working with a great projectionist named Davino Fon from France. That also opens up a panorama of audio-visual. So the, the audience has a lot of things they can touch base on, the combination of the way the audio plays off the visual and vice versa. So even if I'm playing the most extreme, whatever, however they hear it, extreme uh, demolition sounds right in their face, kind of, it blends or they have other references too. Plus the fact that they know me or know me from another day, like some are young enough to say, I, you know, never to have heard the Suicide record when it came out or the first couple of solar records. But they've read enough now in retrospect or whatnot so they can say, okay, he's in a... Like, like you know, the general press, in a way, can kind of put you in a, a bag now where they couldn't necessarily do that before, even though, even though now it's not necessarily correct where they're putting you. But it's, there's a reference point for me and sound has changed, you know, music is, in a way, a lot of stuff in the clubs and everything has become, I notice, even more avant-garde in its own way. You know, some is, stays mainstream and the same, but, you know, a lot of pretty abstract stuff goes on in clubs. So I think when I come out, you know, it gives them uh, something to move to, maybe too, as they're getting uh, a little bit of an assault, maybe, you know, <laughs> which I'm not doing intentionally, I'm just playing... What hears right, you know, sounds right to me at that point. So do you go out to uh, listen to music in clubs? I know that, you know, you spent the last 40 years in clubs of one, yeah. one sort or another, but, but, you know, do you ever go out with friends to hear some, hear some new music? I actually don't anymore. Um, yeah, I spent the first formative years, many, many of them, in, uh, in clubs hearing everything around, especially the scene I was involved in. Now I'm just, I'm, I'm at my, you might say, music or my thoughts and my processes. That's French, processu. But, you know, I'm at that enough during the day that there really isn't time. You know, I don't find this time. I don't find a necessity, although I would definitely gain something from it. But when, I'm that cl- when things are that close to what I'm or- the world I'm already in, um, I tend not to learn as much. I kind of tend to just, like size it up, you know, in the first five or ten seconds. It could be great, it could be not so great, but I know where it's coming from for me, anyway. So I tend to look for things that uh, be surprised or things that I don't get right away. And that's usually, uh, you know, I can, I can access those quicker on a radio in terms of surprises or, or CD, be specific about what I'm looking for or not, or not expecting. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot less time consuming. And, and so the new record is 34 tracks. Many of them are very short. You refer to them as vignettes. 
you know, which sort of capture a mood or attempt to evoke a certain visual setting. Can can you tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the concepts that you were trying to get across as well as some of the influences that went into that? Yeah, well, actually, whatever I said when I was asked to write something about the record, which is not, it could end up being a strong point, but not something I feel I know about enough to even write about, and I'd rather other people do. So I might throw around a word like vignette, or I see when the press says about yearning for unattainable artistic you know, aspirations, because now you're in a word world, and I'm, I'm searching to find one. So Craig said, you know, if you can just give me a couple of lines, we'll expand on it. But maybe, unfortunately, I gave a line or two that now is repeated in every <laughs> announcement. And that, you know, it, it's okay for one or two times, but I, you know, I don't necessarily know if that, what that means either. So the concepts, uh, the concepts I would say of, of, the, of the tracks are purely musical to me. I didn't have any uh, visual concept, specifically musical concept, Partially, coming out of Stigmata, it started me off that way, but then it went somewhere else. And when I heard that uh, possibly what I had was okay, but it was going maybe too far in one direction, not balanced enough for my taste, I would add other but musical things that I dig out of my experience of music, of rock, of jazz, you know, whatever, however it's been distilled. So each one is a, it was a challenge, as they usually are, of musical um, decisions, you know, and and the com- and the combina- combination of all of them is, is a, putting together all these diverse elements is uh, on a musical level totally. So in that sense, there was no concept. I mean, I just hear the way two notes or three notes work together. And immediately I can hear, well, that's that's great, or that's wrong. Most of the time it's not or wrong, or that could be changed, or I can take it here. And when you rearrange it a little bit, then you get another idea from it, and what comes after it is affected by that. It's all uh, musical stuff on that level, that language. And that's where it went all the way through, really. I'm interested in the idea of musical choices uh, stretching back to the beginning of your career because it's it might not be that well known but you know you grew up with rock and roll you got extremely interested in jazz you had uh you know sort of a larger free jazz ensemble you were going into sort of universities to play there and then perhaps the reason that you were able to record the suicide 1977 debut with craig so quickly is because you had been playing those songs for many years at that point like it was extremely well rehearsed but what i'm curious is about is uh you met alan at the museum for living artists at broadway and waverly and immediately identified him as somebody that you could work with or vice versa but for the first few years it was just pretty much like a wall of noise right well going back just a bit uh, it would have been nice if I played universities, but I couldn't even get close to one, musically speaking. Maybe art gal, a couple of art little galleries with my previous group, Reverend B. Not many, maybe one. Meeting Alan, uh, a lot of what kind of cemented, fermented our bonding was that we were both in the same very uh, radical place as artists. 
more than anyone else around us in that environment with ideas of total commitment and going further. And we were like the last guys in the museum to be up and wanting to ex experiment and had, you know, had ideas in mind of taking it further. Alan coming from a visual artist background, going into music. So the beginning was, yeah, it was, I would say, uh, as I may have said before, possibly, it's like starting with a, a, a block of um, marble for a sculptor. It was very natural for me because I was coming out of, at that time, free electronic playing. I evolved through, of course, through rock at that point when I went into jazz. I never left rock. But the jazz discipline was a tremendous challenge and study. So that was for many years as a teenager. And I, I, tended, I kind of developed and evolved through all the stages of jazz, starting with bebop, basically. Although I went sometimes backwards, say, to bebop, because I had to reflect my time which was Coltrane and, and Miles, and then study what came immediately before that. I evolved eventually into playing free, being more influenced by what actually the environment was at that moment, which was the, the so-called avant-garde of jazz, Cecil and Bill Dixon. So starting with Alan and him having not had any musical background in the sense of actual learning, you know, tremendous amount of listening in his whole, his whole life and loving it. He was also playing, uh, he started out playing trumpet and it was a total like free trumpet, in the, you know, AKA like uh, kind of in the world of Don, Don Eiler. So we started that way because um, we didn't know where we were going except we knew we were going to perform it somehow. Rock, rock at that point was the only really open frontier that you felt you could still do anything because it was still young enough. Jazz had had an incredible history already evolving into the avant-garde, as I mentioned. And now it was like uh, really super developed. And there weren't a lot of big open spaces like there were for Charlie Parker and Coltrane and Miles Davis in my generation. But rock was still open. Rock had just started in the 70s with a theatrical reference with Iggy and Alice Cooper. And uh, so the idea was, if we're going to do anything consistently, let's just bring it into this rock uh, medium, this rock scenario. But as far as the, the music was concerned, we didn't have it yet sculpted. We were starting to chisel away at that slowly, but it was still a big block of marble. That's where you hear the, the wall of sound totally. We, we heard what we were doing, um, but it was still in that kind of framework. Alan would have maybe, uh, we'd have maybe four sections in a gig and it'd probably be over in 20 minutes and Alan's uh, would have four quick word things on each one, scream them totally, and I'd have a different, slightly different uh, approach to each one on sound. And uh, to, the, to the average audience, I guess it was probably just totally one block of sound with no break. And we didn't break on anything either. We just went one into the other, it was finished. But we were sculpting it down. And then um, the basic change, I imagine, well, it started to be when I started looking for... Uh, an approach that would get more and more, I guess, not even that conscious about that, but closer and closer to the rock roots where I come out of. 
and something that Alan could not necessarily have to or be screaming on, but we can get close because we couldn't make a demo. We couldn't make anything like bring to a record company even a you know our little two inch uh, you know those four inch tapes that we used to make our demos on. But we couldn't bring them to anybody. It's like impossible. It wasn't really any different than the free stuff I was going doing with uh, Reverend B, which was often electronic. I searched for that at one point. I remember going into, uh, I used to go in to, to uh, use the pianos, which you can't do anymore at NYU because I lived around. I could just walk in, take the elevator, go up to the eighth floor, I think it was, and they had all the practice rooms up there. And in those days, I could just walk in. You know, nobody said anything, nobody checked any any stuff, and I would just sit down and I could work out things. I even had a couple of sessions up there with a band once in, in, with the grand pianos. You know, it was after all the classes were done, but it was still open. So one time in the afternoon, which was right around the corner, basically, from museum, you know, I walked in and uh, I said, no, let me, let me see if I can find something closer to where we're going now that we've gotten this far. And in about uh, five, less than five minutes, now right away, um, I found Rocket USA. I think it was the first one. And I heard it. I heard it and I saw it. I said, that's, you know, that's it. And I think soon after that came Ghost Rider and maybe Cherie, maybe not that. They walked out of there maybe with two tracks. And then uh, that night when we rehearsed, I hit those two tracks. Alan hit something. You know, he heard he was able to come in with another approach. At some point, I said to him very soon after, Try whispering instead of screaming. I think it's going to blend. I could hear that blending better. Something happening. If you, a couple of years later, maybe not until '75 or the end of '74, because I was trying to get percussion uh, involved, but I wanted it to be a rhythm machine, especially after my wife had come down to a session. I didn't want to replace her, and I wanted to, you know, when I heard this idea of rhythm machine, to me, I knew that was the place to go, but I couldn't afford one. Finally, around 75, I, mean, I, I saw one in the, in the papers that I could afford. It was a $30 rhythm machine. I brought that in. When I, and I think it was that night we had, a, we had another rehearsal. At this point, it was just Alan and I. And when I plugged that in, I played it. And, you know, then we had our rhythm section. That's the, that, you know, that was the basic template of all the songs that came after, was that, that rhythm, that kind of beat. And those very, you know, it was kind of, it's Ghost Rider and, you know, Cherie and all that stuff, of course. You can hear their relation. But it was, it was a natural process of, uh, as opposed to a lot of us or a lot of musicians or artists who start with a, a good idea, either tr from tradition or something they know they're going to do and they go right to it. We were starting from a total unknown and just, and just uh, scratching it in. But once I did, I was scratching it out. Once I did it, I knew I was relating to what was innately me in many ways even more than jazz. Because jazz was from a time, a lot of the materials were way before my era. Although, you know, but it was also different because it was much more, it was mostly instru instrumental and very high, top of the line American art. So it def definitely appealed to me, maybe as much as rock in a certain way, but rock was my roots. I mean, it's something that you know, I was hearing probably from the time I was, it's the first time a radio went on, maybe I was two years old or less. And, you know, you do all, you go to all your day, school dances and 
you fell in love, you fell out of love, you were broken up with, you asked a girl to go with you. All that stuff was all to write. It was a soundtrack. So when I came back to that essence so starkly, I realized that is, I'm back to me. You know, again. But it was back in a, in a very rooted way because uh, that was the, the essence of, I think, I realized that's what always made it for me, was the pure essence of that rhythm, among other things, of course, vocals. But, you know, I hear Little Richard today, and I hear Lucille or something like that, it hasn't changed a bit. It's that driving, incredibly tight rhythm and blues, boogie-woogie, rock and roll. You know. Rock had become so developed at that time, we're talking about the end of the 70s, or mid-70s, no, beginning and mid, with great, of course, you know, big studio productions and after the 60s. In some ways, that had been lost. And that was a lot of reason why I veered away from it around the time of the Beatles. You know, I said, okay, Beatles, but man, dig what's happening with Train and these people. That has the edge. That has this, the message. You know? Of course, the Beatles were heralding a whole other approach electronically and whatnot. But it was uh, already getting very big production-wise. It was, you know, starting to. And it was a song form. So that edge that I started, that I heard in jazz at that point, was really what I heard in, in rock, in the beginning, you know, the beginnings of rock, which is really my generation. You know, seeing Elvis and, and uh, Little Richard, Elvis on TV, all those guys, you know, a lot of them, whoever got on TV. Do you feel like people understood how traditional and romantic? the music was at that point? Or do you think they just got thrown off by the stage configuration as well as the antics? Most people did, I think. Uh, there was always, even that early, there was one or two who even got, got who one, there were a few who got it. Well, they said, you know, what, however they got it, they weren't thrown off by the theater of it, you might say, or the sound of it. And it was incredibly loud, I imagine. It's incredibly loud, and for most, of course, abrasively loud. It, it didn't touch any base of anything they knew too much of previous groups. There weren't also any previous instrumentation. There weren't any two-man groups playing like that at that time, and electronic like that with a drum machine, you know, no bass, no drums, otherwise no rhythm guitar, no guitar. So it was considered, it was an, a confrontation in that sense, although it wasn't done for that reason. It was done for purely glorious you know, uh, aspirations, you might say, artistically. But there were always, you know, and as time went on, there was, there was some fairly early, especially after the first album came out, that uh, would remark about the romantic quality and the, well, they heard Cherie and, you know, they had a chance to, and the, even the commercial, because the word then was always the big concept was commercial. Yeah, band, but are they commercial? Everything, everybody looked for something commercial, the producers, the managers. That was the key at the time. And Suicide, whatever they may have been musically that could have been commercial, in no way were considered ever. Plus, plus the name itself, everybody knew, you know, was a no-no. Was totally, you're not going to get on the radio with that, you know. And with that sound. Marty Thau, of course, being the maverick that he was, heard us very early on, but it was when he heard a single we put on a jukebox in Max's that he says himself, I realized they could make a record because he booked us in a show in 72 and he talks about that. And he said, wow, that they're fucking 
phenomenal performance, but they I could never, you know, they, they can't make a record like this. So, so it took about uh, four years when we got that record, and Max has put out a, an album too with one cut. And one night he's, he's having dinner in Max's and somebody plays uh, Rocket USA to the single we made. And he said to himself, holy shit. He said, who is that? He asked somebody, he said, suicide. He said, suicide, holy shit. He said, wow, they can make a record. <laughs> so he called us like the next day. He asked us if he could manage us. In terms of the setup, you mentioned that that was the pure, you know, going for the glory or you seem mainly interested in genres and forms where reinvention is still possible. But another thing that you mentioned earlier on was Alan was the only one at the museum who would stay up as late as you, who was down to work that late to you. Can you describe, like, so it was full commitment for both of you guys. And what was the lifestyle like, you know, say prior to Marty coming in? Well, that was our lifestyle from uh, a good six years, you'd say. It was just about before uh, Marty came in. Getting a, trying to get a show wherever we could. In the early years, probably maybe three a year would be uh, average. But Alan also was seeking a place to create that was fresh for him. And I was seeking that myself. I've always been. I think that's why, you know, can you describe I, I do what I do. What the museum was? It was uh, the museum. Yes, the museum was a loft space on Waverly Place, Mercer and Waverly. The building is not there anymore. It was re- rebuilt as an apartment house. That was a co-op artist space. Existed before I knew anything about it. It was formed, but maybe a year before. Of painters who were actually quite professional. Many, you know, showing for years, veteran painters who were really good, got together and decided uh, we're going to have a co-op gallery. We'll have shows every month or so, you know, and we'll, we'll decide that. And he picked a board of directors because they weren't going to hang out and be around the museum. These were all people who were already older. They were working, you know, they, they, they weren't street artists anymore, but they were, they were ones who didn't become so celebrated, you know, it was beyond the... Uh, Abstract expressionists, modern modern cats too. I mean, abstract painters, you know, from Ed Reinhardt, Styles, and beyond, Stella, and uh, so they picked up. They they decided, I guess, to pick a board of directors. Well, the board was the only ones who, I guess, would be out there enough to watch the place, and they gave keys to them. Alan was one of them. Another one was a great, uh, incredible painter named Joe Catuccio. Gave keys to him. Maybe the guy that we started with, Paul, had keys. I'm not sure at this point. There were maybe five or six, but only Alan and Joe you could find there. <laughs> at any time you went, you went up. So I did a couple of shows there with my previous group, Reverend B. And because uh, they would have events, every night was an every day was another radical kind of. The feeling was very strong in those days in terms of uh, activism. It was during Vietnam. So they'd have film shows, Art Workers Coalition, all kinds of uh, progressive, active art groups would would take museum for a a night to show a program. And one was uh, asked me to do a a gig through a friend of my wife's at the time who recommended me. And I actually had heard of the name uh, 
of the museum, I saw a poster lying on the floor when, we, when I rehearsed Reverend B in another space called Studio We at the time, which is a total jazz avant-garde, incredible space, much more funky down on Eldridge Street. I did that gig, and uh, somewhere uh, soon after that, it was cold outside. I was walking around the streets downtown in Manhattan. I said, well, let me, let me jump upstairs to my museum, maybe warm up and see what's happening up there. So I go up, the only, you know, the only person's there is Alan with his head into a wall and sack tape recorder, trying to squeeze out whatever he could, you know, whatever feedback or anything out of a wall and sack, one of those old white ones. And Paul Liebgard, who is another visual artist, was just trying to squeeze out stuff out of a guitar. It was a little easier for him because he had a guitar. So it was warm enough, I just, you know, sat on, sat on the floor. It was a nice, beautiful, maybe 3,000 square foot space. And listen to them. And then at some point, I, I went to the back. I looked for something to uh, to beat with. I found some industrial springs, if I remember. And I sat on the floor, and I just started doing a drum track to them. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. After that, you know, getting to know Alan a little bit, because he was there every day, and that could be a, that was kind of becoming a shelter for me. You know, I, I realized his past, previous past, right up to that time, was where he, he was a visual artist. He went to college. He was... Uh, and then he was married in Brooklyn, and he was looking, looking, looking to expand. His work was incredible when I finally saw it, of course. It's so intense. And when he, first, when he saw Iggy at Forest Park in Queens, it changed his whole, he said, I have to, I can't be an artist anymore unless I perform. He walked out with that thought in his head, and that's real. So I met him coming out of this place, and he left his wife, he left his fairly ongoing, aspiring bourgeois life in Brooklyn Heights, Park Slope. And when I met him, he was living in the street, uh, living in a museum, and uh, occasionally in Brooklyn at a friend's, you know, who let him stay in the basement, a married guy who had a brownstone. And I was in the same place, although already I was married, I had kids. I'm talking about somebody who was like 20, 21. Life for me was uh, very uh, exalted, you might say between trying to survive on all counts. My wife was an incredible <laughs> spirit artistically and whatnot. I knew I was still going somewhere. I knew, for me, it was always like, okay, I'm playing free, but it's still, it's new because it's electronic, but it's not new enough. Like, what am I going to be doing next month? I wouldn't be thinking that way, but I knew I was still evolving. I was too, I was too young artistically to find my niche, and I could never find it commercially because there was no niche that would accept me anyway. So I had to keep going. If jazz or rock at some point said, wow, this looks, you know, it could have been too bad in a way. It may have stilted me in the sense that now I would have had a career in one of these, uh, one of these phases. But I never did. It was no way. So I had to keep going and I had to keep uh, for myself. You know, it's an obsessive, just to, making music has always been, you know, like uh, kind of the only way to live you know, in many ways spiritually you know, you know if not economically that's okay you know. there was no risk factor ever taken that was the insanity of my approach since i was a little kid you know. not knowing oh, i'm not taking a risk i mean i'm not going to factor it in I, you know it's not going to happen to me i'm going to just do this and see what comes out so um it's a, it's a certain autism for sure but a positive one i think artists need or usually are to some extent probably autistic to in, a, in a good way like autist autism is good in a certain sense if it's focused 
yeah, so that was the background. And we were, um, I was on the streets a lot. You know, I had my, my, my wife had a play. We had a place just getting by. It was okay. I had my place that I had a little stu tiny studio before I met her. And I was uptown, and I was downtown walking around and searching and pl playing after I played uptown, my own uh, practicing, you might say, whatever. And uh, and I'm and run into Alan, who's in the same transporting situation in his life, artistically especially. Can you can you explain what it was like walking around downtown at the time? I mean, much has been made of this era of downtown life, but I know that Alan said that leaving the museum at three in the morning during rehearsal was like taking your life into your own hands to some extent. Like, was it, what was it like? And now Waverly and Broadway, there's probably, you know, a multi-million dollar development there, of course. But what was it there like is, at the yeah. time? New York was a lot more real. Uh, there wasn't this whole gentrification hadn't, that we saw in the 80s, starting in the 90s especially, hadn't taken place. There was a downgrade of its economic status, um, apparently, where New York was considered a riskier investment, so its bonds went down to B or whatever. After the 60s, after the bubble of the 60s in general. But it was an exciting place. I mean, I never felt around Waverly and Broadway that you were taking your life personally. It was a little rougher. This is before cell phones and, of course, internet. So I think with cell phones now is... You know, you walk down the street and the toughest guy could be talking on a cell phone. He's not bothering with you. He doesn't give a shit about you. You know, which makes makes it a lot freer if you're not talking on a phone. You know, where you know in earlier days and before my days, even you know, guy or guys or a bunch of guys on the street, they're looking for they have nothing to do. They're restless, so they see somebody they say, "Well, man, let's start up with him." So maybe we can kick his ass. You know, now everybody has a phone, so they're occupied. <laughs> So it had that, you know, it had that sense, but that's always what made New York uh, into all the filmmakers and the film noir people so exciting. It still does, you know, whatever's the parts of it that you can still, that are left of that. The essence of it is still there, underneath. I mean, when the first time I moved back into the city, I was born in the city, when I was 18 in my own place, and the Lower East Side was one of the most exciting, happy days of my life because I knew I was surrounded by the greatest masters of the music at that time. The greatest jazz players, except for a couple who really did really well, who were living uptown on the west side, were living down there. Plus the whole art scene and all the abstract expressionists who extended, who came out of that. Some of them weren't discovered that way, but... And all the experimenters too. Dance was still happening, was still pioneering, writing. That was just an exciting place to be. By in the 70s, by the time I met Alan, it was starting to simmer down a bit, but it was still it was still a great place. But it's a limbo period. Yeah. So the early '70s, you know, you guys were uh, the compilation that you referred to was put out by Max's Kansas City, uh, you know, which was sort of your haunt in the early days in terms of you know, there's a live album that was recorded there, of course, and it feels to some extent like you guys are kind of paving the way for an extremely fertile period where clubbing and going out to places like the Mud Club and like Studio 57 takes a different form where anything goes, you know, like you can play an Elvis record, you know, next to like an early electronic thing. And 
I feel like you guys are sort of setting the stage for that a little bit at, at this point or part of like a small crew that's musically setting the stage for for this kind of free thinking. Well, if we were to an extent, it's only because what we were doing was get was being done on those. And once you do what we were doing on stage, then it's well, it's like, OK, if you could do that, we can do this. <laughs> You know, I think there were a lot of bands maybe have said that who came after James, James Chance and what in no way people say would have hurt us that way. But there was a, a definite movement going on behind the scenes. Bands didn't know, we didn't know most of the bands and they didn't know us. But there was this, which culminated in like this glam rock scene, which then went into punk. And all those bands were around locally. The Dolls, Eric Emerson, you know, yeah, the Tramps. David Johansson was an early supporter. Yeah, he was definitely an early supporter of us. He got—he's one of those people who just got us right away when when others were running out of the the Mercer Arts Center, the Blue Room, we were playing. But places like the Mercer Arts Center were kind of like uh, points, cathartic uh, scenes where all these bands came together and got to know each other because that's the way. Mercer was like about, I don't know, five to ten, more than five separate theaters, small theaters, some large like little movie theaters. And they'd have bands in each one simultaneously on many nights. It was a great concept on two floors. So all of a sudden, all these bands started coming out of like, you know, the wings. That was something that needed to be done, whether I think whether we were there or not. I mean, a lot of bands didn't know where we were coming from at all and didn't relate to us that way. Many, especially in the glam rock scene, but some some did. But I know Debbie and Chris, they were around. Debbie was a part of another group even before I heard her, called the Stilettos. You know, these were all kids who were musicians, uh, local musicians, and doing stuff for bands. Basically, had no place to play. And Max's didn't come later. The first Max's was uh, another scene altogether on another ownership, which closed. And you couldn't get in there if you were... We got in for two showcases of, as it was closing, but in, out of incredible circumstances, another story, which I don't have to bother you with here, but otherwise it was impossible. You couldn't even walk in. Max's carded people walking in. If they saw me waiting, they you know they wouldn't even let me in. We're too street. And uh, Mercy Road Center was the first one to kind of bring that all together. And then the reopening of Max's and... CBGB's becoming a venue. They had been around for years, but not with... Uh, nobody was in there. It was like a, just a drinking joint. At the time, uh, the Mercer Arts Center actually collapsed at some point, but, uh, you know, New York Dolls played some famous gigs there. Obviously, you identified it along with, like, a lot of other kids that needed a place to go, needed a place to play, needed a stage... Uh, as something that brought people together that was crucial. But after the record comes out, you develop some fairly high-profile fans, you know, tour Europe with Elvis Costello, 23 Minutes Over over Brussels, live recording where uh, the audience doesn't get it in a profound manner. And, uh, you know, Springsteen obviously has been like an avid supporter. He's still playing Dream Baby Dream, what do you what do you think it is about your music that 
inspired such rabid fandom on the part of these like superstar musicians? Was it, do you think it was like you were doing what they wish they could do or what, what was going on there? I would know? say that, and the, and the first ones recognizably like from that world was the cars too, you know, because they had just emerged uh, at that time also. So it became big uh, with their first record. But I couldn't say what it what it was, except is um, I think to some people like the Cars and Rick, and maybe Bruce Springsteen. There's something about it musically because they they are astute musicians. Above all, very astute. And then there's something, uh, maybe just internal. There's something uh, in the uh, the way it's it comes out in the intensity, coupled with the. The musical references would show to them. I couldn't. I wouldn't say it's something they wish they did. I think it's something that sometimes they like to play with and try. It's really impossible, very difficult to say what that. You know, when we first started early shows, when I heard what we were doing, from my exalted perspective, I I heard we were going to be we could be as big as the Beatles because the Beatles that was our immediate predecessors was Stadium Rock, gigantic Stadium Rock. But a whole wall of Fender, Fender bass amps and guitar amps. And when I heard, you know, I, that's weird, that's what we sounded like on stage to me. <laughs> and uh, I think to Alan as well, although we never spoke about that. We just knew, you know, we're going further with this. But the stadium scene was winding down in many respects, except for a select few. And we ended up being hardly able to get a gig in the, in the clubs. That's yeah. It's 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 what the, what they've heard. I don't know. There may be a certain essence of expression. I think there's. Uh, it's hard to put your to, to verbalize it, yeah. especially for me. I don't know. Uh, for them, I think each one is maybe a little different in what why they came to it. The resonance is is interesting though because in doing research for this interview, I began to listen through the discography, uh, through some of the releases from the 2000s that I wasn't as familiar with. But one record that I've been a fan of since right after Red Star was was the uh, self-titled debut from 1980. And it begins with Mary, which, you know, for my money is like one of the most beautiful sort of instrumentals ever created. And I see a lot of connections with that tune in particular and early craft work or like German electronic music. And I, I know that, you know, Alan had turned you on to Can and stuff like that. But that sort of starts a journey that is actually like more musically revolutionary than suicide with like your solo career like these are these are truly out out there records that you know it's tough to find an immediate predecessor for something like Les Nymphs or Stigmata I mean can can you talk a little bit about how you took it even further out because it seems like the theme that we keep getting back to is what you're trying to avoid is complacency you know and the fact that you never really found you know a niche where you were you know, in a penthouse doing a few sessions a week and completely accepted by the industry. That's what kept you pushing forward to this mm -hmm. day, yeah? Yeah, that's what keeps me, that's what pushes me forward now. I never, can't find complacency artistically. I would never want to, actually, anymore. It's not my nature. I, 
I can understand now looking at what I've done, no way I've done it. And in terms of some of those early electronic influences, was was Craig's sort of integration of the Jamaican dub techniques on self-titled, was that like pretty revolutionary for you as well? With all due respect to Craig, I had never heard what he did when he came into the studio. I didn't even know uh, Craig was a, a composing musician as well. I had never heard of Craig Leon. I don't think Alan had either. You know, we weren't... Craig was already part of a very uh, astute world in the music business, which we weren't. We were still on the outskirts of him. There's no way, you know, Sire and all the Warners and all those kind of labels. And, you know, we were... The few, the few labels that Marty, maybe one or two, had us audition for just passed quickly on the Mercury, you know, ones that he had contacts with from his past. And when Alan mentioned uh, very early on, hey, there's other groups doing kind of a similar thing. He didn't play them for me, but he said, you know, this can. A couple more, the names skipped me right now. I'd have to look them up again. It's been a long time since I tried to think. They were kind of in the world equal almost to stature, to known stature as can at that point, but I don't know if they've done that much since. So... I said, okay, that's uh, that's good to know. I think maybe he did play a little bit in front of me because we didn't have, I couldn't go online and play them. I didn't have the records. So I heard him right away and I said, you know, to myself, I said, well, yeah, but that's great, but it's not, it doesn't influence me because it's not me. You know, I just, I don't hear it that way. I mean, it's, it's great. It's not my way I would do it. A lot of my electronic genesis, how you describe it, that is that... Uh, it came out of the music itself. Suicide, in the development of itself and electronically, how I found myself navigating through what I was discovering and creating whatever that place was to create that sound for me, found, got other ideas out of the suicide and out of, you know, which, which came about as a culmination of what I had been doing before. I couldn't separate any of it really from the early rock that I was brought up on all the jazz. The first, the first solo album was, was, I think the main idea that got me day one on it to start it was like, wow, how would that sound as an instrumental? You know, how would suicide sound as an instrumental? We now you know, have this beautiful ship in a bottle, as they used to say, you know, this fragile, beautiful form, suicide vocal. But wow, I've started to hear the possible, the, oh, I heard the potential, not specifically in notes of, of taking out the vocal and now you have a, a different kind of a track. Yeah. So that got me into the studio day one when Charles Ball, ironically, opened up the, process, the possibility, asked me to do a record with him maybe very soon after that. And then the rest just came again from the musical decisions based on what I heard and saw myself doing. It's really just hearing what you're doing, seeing it visually too, not necessarily in specific images, and then going, well, this could be here, this could be here, this could be here, this works. Of course, we did that record, it was very little editing that way, and we weren't working online or in a sequencer. That's always been the process in a way. So I found that what I, my initial idea was to maybe see what happens if I just take suicide out of the vocal range created that record, and several others after. And then, I, of course, I started bringing in vocals in various 
uh, ways, various philosophies after, too. And then on that record, too, with Baby Oh Baby. At that period of time, Alan has like an Electra contract, right? And... Um, uh, what time? That was... Yeah, that was right... Yeah, a little after that. That's right. And, and Alan was... Z Records. Yeah. A couple oh, of years yeah, later. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so he's sort of part of this downtown scene. And, you know, you guys are both... You've been known for a very long time. Uh, you've been notorious in the downtown scene for well over a decade at this point. And Alan, Alan mentioned at the time, like getting caught up in some of the trappings of going out. And, you know, I mean, you guys look great, like a very specific thing. And like, did you, did you also get into the nightlife at that point beyond performing or? Well, more of an extent than I might now, but uh, not to any great extent, uh, I don't think. Because the only clubs... I guess when Alan started with Elektra, because uh, Michael Zilka from Z asked him to do his first record with Jukebox Baby, and then uh, apparently uh, someone else we knew who actually knew very well who brought us, signed us for our second suicide album, Howard Thompson, I believe, was working uh, for Elektra at the time. Or it may not have been Howard at that moment. Uh, but in any case, they asked Alan to go from that record to an Elektra record. But now we're talking about the 80s. So by that time, the clubs, Max's had pretty much closed. Uh, it was closing and closed probably by, I think, 80, 81. CBGB's was a regularly showcasing band kind of experience, but that aspect of the scene was kind of uh, not there. So now you had, like you mentioned, the Mud Club, a few other places popping up and closing down. And uh, for me, they weren't necessarily places I wanted to hang out in. You know, I could still go uh, here and there because I could walk a few blocks and go to CBGB's, uh, but not necessarily hear a band. A lot of nights it was on their off nights too, but you'd see a lot of people you knew. Alan, yeah, Alan started to uh, more so during that period because he was living in a hotel situation, part of that life more, and especially when the electric record came out. Yeah, part of that set. You've seen New York go through various peaks and valleys that you've described, like the, the boom and bust cycle. And, you know, you've watched Manhattan be transformed by people like our current president into something that must be unrecognizable to some extent. Like, do you, do you still see pockets of the old New York? Are you inspired by the new form that it's taken? No, I'm not inspired by it at all. I don't, I'm not turned off by it totally, except for the cost of living in, in general, which has made, partially what's made uh, new arts very difficult to flower in New York. Although a lot of that is, I think, because of the evolution of those arts themselves at this point. But it's been happening since really the, seven, the end, late 70s, more intensely. And uh, there's a lot of pockets. Yeah, you walk on the west side, you walk around Hell's Kitchen, you walk around... Chelsea, west of Chelsea, and uh, 23rd Street and 6th Avenue. Brooklyn, of course, uh, parts of Brooklyn. And yeah, you, you see that, that old New York is still there. Uh, not necessarily in all the residents. They haven't torn it all down yet. And if, for somebody like me who's lucky enough to be, have been brought up here, the ghosts of this town are still around. So I, get, you know, I can get a really 
full sense sometimes being in New York because I know everything in my life that has happened and everything that's happened to me. It's like the cha- all the chapters of my life essentially, visually, are in this town, based in this town. So if I go by a certain park, if I go by this or that, I can, I can be remember sometimes spontaneously three or four or five incidents of my life starting from an early teenager or before based on that park, like Washington Square Park just for me has so many different stories just at different periods of my life, way before suicide and after. And you can imagine how many stories that park has in general, <laughs> if that, that place could talk. No, you can find it. It's, it's still here. It's still a great town. It's still got, you know, great energy in comparison. You can still find more of what you're looking for essentially in terms of you need something Except a UCD, it's hard to find a UCD shop anymore. And book used bookstores are, of course, endangered species. But but if you're looking for a, a certain can of paint or a certain material for art or a certain vitamin or this or that, well, vitamin you can still find it online better. But a lot of times you can just make a call or run right out of your pad and you can get it, which is not the usual thing in most or just about every city, even big cities. Montreal is good for that too. So it's, you know, it's still a great town. I think people who come here from outside tend to blend into the energy of it, you know, because it's, there's no choice. It's the environment. It's the amount of concrete and the height of the concrete vis-a-vis the amount of nature, which is just about none, and the amount of people. You know, it's like you put those factors together. It's a very uh, kind of, I guess, a mathematical thing. It creates a certain rhythm and a certain headset to a certain amount of uh, comfort and discomfort and stress and a certain amount of intelligence. You take out jazz again and you take out uh, a lot of the real experimental artists in, in dance and art and writing that were there in the 60s, you're going to have less. Same thing in Paris. Paris is like that too now. Where's the, you know, the art scenes of before, but Paris is still there. It may still be to some uh, a museum, a beautiful museum or an amusement park. But especially for people who are brought up in Paris, they can find, uh, they won't take, the, they won't tear that down consciously because they know that's a, a real attraction. So Paris is still there if you, for, mem- for the memories anyway, for some who, <laughs> you know, who lived enough in that space. You know, when we've spoken about other groups, with suicide, there's a way to trace what Alan was doing back to Iggy Pop, who was himself inspired by Jim Morrison. So it's in this, you know, lineage of American rock frontmen. With you, it seems like it seems like you're more inspired by walking around or your wife or going to the bookstore than, you know, checking out what the latest groups are. Like you hear it, but but it seems like you know, you're like, oh, that's not me, though. I'm, I'm this city. I'm, I'm, you know, walking to the store late at night. I mean, would you say that you're more inspired by experiences? And Yeah, but also the experience of music. I think that's what the experiences you've had in music and specific pieces that have moved you. I think when you when you move by, a, by say, a track or it could be anything, you know, it could be jazz, classical. When you sat there and say, wow, that is really cool, that's really good, 
you're hearing it in a more profound way than just hearing it passively. Someone said that a conductor named Celebadake, Sergei Celebadake, great conductor. Or some said Celebadache, Romanian conductor. He's got a, had a lot of recordings. I think he mentioned it. But it becomes, a, it becomes an experience internally that then affects what you do viscerally, not necessarily consciously all the time. And all those experiences also, and of course, your living experience. But when we're speaking about creating something like music, it's really a lot of what, you've, what you love and what you've loved uh, in the past and what you still love, that, that, that uh, infatuation of hearing a piece. And I could, I could hear something now that I've heard 30, 40 times and a certain piece and I'll go, wow, shit. That's fucking beautiful, you know. Like we talked about Little Richard before, the Little Richard, you know. And uh, or WC or you know, Coltrane. It's just stuff that holds up to you. And sometimes, if you when you're working on something, you're going for something that you weren't really conscious of before, and then all of a sudden you hear you hear a piece that you've heard maybe 50 times, and you get an idea because it it it. it it kind of uh, complements exactly. It tells you something about what you're doing then. It gives you an idea for what you're doing then. So you've heard it all those times, but you never focused, heard it that way. And now all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, he was, yeah, there's an idea for me on what I'm working on now. And if you're not working on something then, it sometimes will just go by you in that sense. You're not going to necessarily derive an idea from it, except for the fact that it's beautiful to you and you dig it so I think primarily for music it's the musical experiences I've had and I don't even know if it's primary but yeah all the life experience I could not separate Mari from what my life was about and how that affected my music although I was already a musician before I met Mari how it grew and was affected through that coming together that, that relation and my relationships now and before, my life uh, as a kid, as a teenager in the park, you know, with groups, guys, girls, the music coming through all the time out of the streets. The beautiful thing at that time was the music was always, always you know, everybody had a little transistor radio, like now they might have an iPad, iPod. And the music was coming right off the corners, and, you know. So you, you related to it because they were all like people you knew. You know, a group would be singing on a corner, or, a guy would come in and say, hey, that might be cool. How would you like to make a record? They'd cut a record the next day in a two-track. And then the cat who made the record would go out and plug it and pay some DJs and whatnot, start getting it on the radio. And it happened that fast. It was coming right off the grassroots. So it had a genuine, genuineness to it that you related to totally. And it was coming out fresh. Every time you put on a radio every day, you had a whole bunch of fresh new songs. You know? Cool, good ones, great ones. Because yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the early part of the uh, genre, so everything was starting from scratch, pretty much. I mean, not that totally, but soon. But it came out of it came out of the end. It came out of jazz before that, in the forties. You know, big Joe Turner and all this. I mean, he was singing rock and roll, shake right on roll. You know, led right into the fifties. Yeah. We didn't know that then. We just heard, well, wow. That's our music, man. I want to ask my, I can, I can get the nerve to ask my, the girl out now, maybe with this on. <laughs> or ask her to the dance. Or I'll dream about her anyway, because, man, you know. And this was something that, you know, Alan 
was so good at channeling like he's he was an unhinged crooner you know and and i mean you know you guys obviously mute did their large reissue campaign you know you kind of had this sort of triumphant comeback and you know performed the first album at altamara's parties and of course alan passed away last year but I get, I get the feeling that suicide never really ended, per se. Like it, well, it never did, especially up to that point, and maybe after. I don't know for sure. Well, not the. When I heard us as big as the Beatles, and we're talking about maybe seventy-one uh, or seventy-two, the reality of that development for us, the evolution, would be. Years and years of never being as big as the Beatles, <laughs> but a certain something else that was maybe big or as big, but was taking, could take 40, 50, 60, 70 years. So it's another kind of a recognition that seemed to become, of course, more and more profound in time. That's probably still happening now because, you know, what we, what we did and even the records I do a lot of them, like you mentioned, you know, they they don't fall on mass ears. But somehow, if they don't fall totally through the cracks, if there's something in the music that doesn't fall, have them fall that way, they get pulled back in. Suicide gets pulled back into a reevaluation, and it's the same with uh, a lot of artists of the past. I mean, Van Gogh never sold one painting. It's a perfect example in his lifetime. And who could uh, deny Van Gogh, you know, and he's still revealed, looked at like crazy and sells for incredible amounts of money. <laughs> so that was our destiny, obviously. Not to be, although the Beatles are still remembered today too. They're, you know, one of the groups that could have it then and have it after. That was ours. You know, and it, can't, it can't be planned. It can't be conceived. You just do what you do and then see how it plays out. And uh, so it may not be, you know, it doesn't end in that sense, probably. For all we know, you know, there would first be a certain bringing back of uh, what was suicide about. Let's write about it. Let's maybe do a documentary. And it's, it's all food for the mill, as they say, too. Just for the mill. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for continuing to provide us with yeah. grist for the mill, Martin. Okay. It's been an honor grist to speak with you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like a, <laughs> not just, uh, thank you. Congrats on the new record, and uh, Thanks. looking forward to wherever you decide to take it next. All right, cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Man. Me too. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.